Uh, fun fact, Mr. Jones. Guess who didn't make it tonight? And his excuse. No. No. Doesn't even have any fatherly responsibilities to fall back on. You know what that means? Loser. It's you and me, buddy. It's you and me. We got the A team now. Damn right. Get her done. Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Paul. With me tonight in the Bob Media Studios is the man himself, the Pharaoh of Finance, the Sultan of Sport, the Khan of Contra Costa County. It is Mr. Jones, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yes! Danny, Danny, Danny. Oh, what a wonderful week. Glad to see it come to an end, but finishing on a high note with uh, the podcast and all the Bobs out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's up to the bobs. I think we're over 50 now. Oh, I gotta keep say it growing. The, Tell a friend. Bottle of Brown Podcast Instagram account is blowing up. So we're getting more mm-hmm. followers there. Hopefully you're listening to the show. Hopefully you like what you hear. Sadly, as I sigh into my expensive microphone, Leon will not be joining us tonight. You know why? Because he's a loser. Mm-hmm. Lucas Zahar. I'm sure he's got shit to do. So we'll get the full story next week because next week we're going to kick off Brown Bracket Part 2. You excited? Because I'm excited. I'm excited. I can't wait. I'm drooling. Can't wait. So since we're going to talk about the Brown Bracket next week, we might as well cut to the chase. What's your brown for tonight, Mr. Jones? Oh, oh, oh. The brown tonight is actually one of my favorites. It's the McKenna 10-year single barrel uh, bottle mm. and bond. Um, and one McKenna. of the absolute, you know, you can't E-I-B. go wrong. You can't go wrong with it. I actually, funny story. I had a, one of my favorite watering holes local. It had a, I think it was an 18 year Eagle rare. And I was like, mm, let me try some of that. It was good. It's very nice. But you know, to find it on the local shelf at $2,000 a bottle. No. And then I got a bottle of it or a glass of this afterwards. And I'll be honest. I like this more. Call it just the simplicity of it. There's uh, something to be said about finding the right bottle. It's mm-hmm. kind of like wine, you know, it doesn't have to be that expensive. Doesn't have to. If, if you like it, that's all that matters in this world. I believe it. My brown tonight. Mm-hmm. Ooh, what do you got? My brown tonight is the winner of last year's brown bracket. I am enjoying myself some Knob Creek single barrel. Nice. The last of the Knob Creek single barrel. Well, I gotta say Knob poetic. Creek was the ultimate sleeper in that competition because we were mm. positive that it was going to be Elijah Craig and Buffalo Trace. And we were both wrong. So Leon and I were pleasantly surprised that Knob took it. Although I think he's got a new point system this time because it kind of came down to, it was a, it was a blind rating where we would give each one points. And so he had a metric. It was points for points for nose points for finish points for that first hit. And then I think he also threw in price. And so you rated all those based on what you thought they were. Anyway, you can listen to the, yeah, Bob's can listen to back also, episodes. It had to be like episode three, four, or five. It was really early in the run for the Brown Bowls. Yeah, but, but it was also like it had to be the 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 ability to find it too, right? Like it couldn't be mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. that was really rare and you know, only found in you know the well. To be honest, going into like the lower income areas and the liquor stores to find that stuff and paint through. Yeah, so we knew which of the two competing Browns it was, but we didn't know when we tasted it. So we gave, we gave our, our rating before the drink and then after the drink. And so it was two scores for the drink and then two scores for the taste. And I think that's what won. And whenever we got to a tiebreaker, it was kind of, Leon was nice enough to say, what do you want? So this time I think he's probably going to stack the deck because he definitely wants his Buffalo Trace to make it higher up in the bracket. But you never know. We might have a St. Peter's Cinderella story here at Augusta. So... Right here. We'll wait and see. But he's got a very nice thing packed up for you, Bob's at home listening. He's got a full deal with uh, individually labeled bottles. And Mr. Jones and I are expecting packages post haste. And, and by label, it just says a letter and a number. <laughs> so we have no idea. 
Yeah, we don't even know what, be the, blind. what the actual Browns are. So we're just going to get a box of bottles with booze in them, which it's not even Christmas. Yes, <laughs> refrain from drinking, please. Good time. Stuff out there. So we uh, talked about Brown. Let's talk about Brown. Mm, I like it. How you doing? Whiskey and whiskey. This is the darkest brown you got. Yeah. Say, Holmes, uh, where they hiding the scotch? What about, um, brown? That's code for bourbon. Great stuff, this bourbon. Comes from a land called Kentucky. Talk about brown. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Scotch? Oh, yes, I, I think so. Could I have one more of these with some booze in it, please? Nice talk about brown. Comes to us from the Whiskey Advocate. Friend of the show, future advertiser. They don't really know that we do this, but once they find out, boom, partnership. This is five world whiskeys to try now. Dated February 7th. Julia Higgins has the byline. I wanted to save this one for you, Mr. Jones, because you are the consummate world traveler. You have actually, amongst all of the people that I know, are the single person that went one direction and came back the other. So that's very exciting to me. Five World Whiskeys in the Winter 2021 Buying Guide. Ooh. These so are the first already one is intrigued. Eiffel Whiskey, German Peated Duo. 94 points, 46%, 90 bucks a bottle. What do you think? Not so hot. Curious on, you know, the nose says Nestle Crunch Bar. I'm yeah. already intrigued. Mm. Dates. Smoke from uh, Greenwood. Mm. Earth then. And then a golden syrup, vanilla seeds, and cherry gummy bears, and a melody of dried fruit. I, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'll be honest. Well, Four to I one mean, mash it, bill it, ratio of malted wheat and barley to 35 parts per million peated malt, a fine blended scotch that costs 10 times more. But it yeah. doesn't. It's the Germans. I need to find it. Leon's going to be pissed because he likes all these foo-foo descriptions. All right, number two. Impex Collection, three-year-old 2017, distilled at Milk and Honey Distillery. The Israels. I still got that bottle of Milk and Honey. That stuff's good. I'm supposed to save it for Leon, though, when he comes to visit. He keeps saying he's going to come visit. He keeps trying to get us out there, which we will. We're going to make trips because we got to do some live shows, but this, this would be fun. The, the PX Sherry Hog Shed finish has imbued a dark sweetness and punchy spices, a nose of raisins. Mixed peel, ground ginger, and dark forest honey is molasses-like with golden syrup loaf, cinnamon, and tamarind. Not my style. I'm going to be honest. That one's not singing to me as much. Yeah, a slightly sticky mouthfeel is not, uh, uh, just not, not enticing. Not an enticing <laughs> copy for me. Sweet and punchy. Spices? Okay. I don't know. Ginger? Dates, apple, pear, dark rum, crests with a prolonged wave of nippy spices, especially clove. Yeah, I see clove. I'm out. Sorry. I gotta say, milk and honey is pretty solid. Like that Israeli scotch that I got, it's really, really nice. Mm -hmm. But this one? We're gonna give it a... Number three. Komagatake. 2021 edition Japanese single malts, 91 mm. points. Now, pause for station identification. Japanese whiskey, in my experience, goes from nothing, 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 nothing to, oh my God, to Yamazaki. Mm. So it's a really weird way that they do that. It's, the, it's either water in a bottle or it's really good. And so in the art and spirit of Japanese perfection, perhaps, since this is $1.99 a bottle, <laughs> That we're getting up in the realm of the good stuff. It's interesting. This one's aroma of watermelon, ruby, grapefruit, uh, lychee, exotic florals, white pepper, and a little candy sweetness of Coca-Cola cube and strawberry laces are combination uh, contrast with the chocolate flavors of a 2020 edition. I mean, mm. I'm intrigued. This Cola sounds, cube. What do you think? What is that? I, I'm thinking overly sweet, like really sweet and sour. So here's what I like. On the palate, you couldn't ask for a juicier whiskey. That's very interesting to me because Mm -hmm. I love the driest possible beer, but maybe a juicy whiskey would be exciting. So would this be like you getting a juicy IPA then in my whiskey? 
is that where we're kind of going with the floors, the grapefruits, the lychee? Like, like is that where we're going with this? I, I'm intrigued. But yeah, for I mean, see what they close out. Bottle, fruit salad with red apple, strawberry, watermelon, and that candy sweetness again before an edgier finish of bittersweet citrus and grapefruit acidity. I don't know, man. Grapefruit is this is kind of fascinating. I don't know if I want to drop two hundred dollars, but I'm not. Uh, I'd be willing to see if my local watering holes carry such a bottle. Is it possible? Komagatake. Single malt Japanese whiskey. I'm intrigued. Mark that I one. I like it. Mark that one. All right, what are we on? Like we're on uh, we're number four. Number four. Coppery's French single malt. France. I'm going to pause here for station identification. So the old man who I want to get on on the show, I want to get the chairman on the pod. He is a huge genealogy fan. Like he goes deep. Mm-hmm. He's got the he's got the lineage going up five generations or so. And then he's gone way back to like the 1200s because we're all descended from the Merovingian kings and all that. And like, hey, yeah, whatever, dad. But he got us actually five or six generations back from today. And so what I found out is that my great, 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 my greats, three greats, three or four greats grandfather was in the Cartier family Mm. as in jewelry. And it turns out that there's a very, very small sliver of Irish in my family, which was a surprise to me because we had always leaned on what my grandparents told us, which is, yeah, we're Irish. It's great. Turns out we're in a lot of French. Yeah. Danny Paul's tree. And Scottish, I believe too. I've had that discussion. A little discussion bit of Scottish, a little bit of yeah. Irish, a little bit of British, but there's a lot of French. Mm. So I got to rethink things. I have to, I have to rethink my family tree. Does that mean we're eating more crepes? My lineage provides a certain je ne sais quoi. Anyway, back to the, back to the list. Coppery's French single malt, double distilled in Charente copper pot stills, more commonly used for making brandy and cognac. This well-made whiskey has aromas of zested clementine over orange cake, dry wood spices, milk, chocolate, roasted hazelnuts, and melted butter, and charred oak. I'm Sweet. 60 bucks a bottle. Sweet. I'm in. Um, I think it would be a good dessert finisher over, you know, a chocolate cake. To be honest, yeah, I mean, not just pairing. sweet, but like silky sweet. So we're mm-hmm. talking about brandy Smoothie and soap. cognac, copper pot stills. Mm-hmm. So this is not, this is not a wood. Well, I suppose it could be wood. Dry and fruity flavors with baked oranges, dried apricots, red apple, creamy milk chocolate, mm-hmm. malt, and dried red fruit in the end of bright and spicy notes. Right. Spicy note, bright spice. Oh, bright spicy note. It very interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I uh, got to look for this. It. I will keep my eye open for this one because at one, the price point, I'm in. Two, interesting. I don't know if you could drink a lot of it. I don't think I could pour tonight's pour. A single malt copper raised oh, French whiskey, whiskey français. Very cool. All right, number five, and the coup de main. Langatoon Jacobs Dram Swiss single malt. So this is basically around the brown part two for me, which is what I usually do after the brown brackets. So maybe this is a roadmap, although mm. 150 bucks a bottle. This Pinot Noir cask finish honors master distiller Hans Baumberger III's great-grandfather Jacob, or Jacob, who founded the distillery in 1857. The nose exudes black honey, strawberry, conserve, walnut, black cherry, raisin, black currant, and burnt cake. Light-bodied with strawberry, plum, black pepper, damson, and chocolate cookie sweetness. I don't know. Jay, what do you think? You know, I'm intrigued more on this one. I guess if, here's, here's the question to you. Of the five, this one seems very good. $150 $150 bottle, a little heavy, but mm. I think all the choices are pretty much below a hundred. I don't think there's any above a hundred. Yeah, we got Which 90, one 90 you... 199. So the Komaka, Komagatake yeah. is the expensive one. Uh, otherwise so, we have 90, 90, 60 and 150. So taking out the price, which one would you seek out? 
I, I got to go with the, with the Komagatake. The, oh. uh, that's okay. one of the culperies because because that my, my French people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How about you? Uh, I'm going to go with the first one. It's the Germans. The Germans, because I have a German Prussian heritage. So I'm going to go with my Germans, but same to you. You know what? I think this I one actually sounds really bar. good. I'm in. Yeah. It, it was, it was the chewy gummy bears that really got me or cherry gummy bears that really got me. Well, fun fact about this list is they're listed in points in descending order. So you have the highest point rating at 94 points. And the Langerton Jacobs Dram Swiss was 89 points. But, you know, as long as it's over a certain threshold, it's probably still good brown. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's talk about brown. We'll be right back. back let's get into business news news team assemble let's get down let's get down to business and i got news for you today's business news comes to us from cnbc.com mr jones is excited about this i don't know if i am i may have to take the place of of leon in this particular paradigm arizona is <laughs> the first state to support digital driver's licenses in apple wallet on iPhone. iPhone owners in Arizona are now able to load their driver's license or state ID into their iPhone's wallet app. The digital ID will allow holders to pass through TSA checkpoints in Sky Harbor International Airport in Phoenix. The digital ID feature is another step in Apple's long-term strategy to replace credit cards, cash, loyalty cards, and IDs with digital equivalents in the iPhone app. Now, before we go any further, that is exciting. Come on. Come on, people. Full stop. The three little bullet points they do at the beginning of the article. Full stop. That is exciting. iPhone owners in Arizona can now load their driver's license or state ID into their iPhone's wallet app. The digital ID will allow holders to pass their TSA checkpoints in Sky Harbor International Airport. The digital ID feature <clears throat> is another step in Apple's long-term strategy to replace blah, 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 blah. Although Apple doesn't make a lot of revenue from its wallet, the features are useful and make it harder to switch to Android. Apple also said on Wednesday plans to introduce the feature in Colorado, Hawaii, Mississippi, Ohio, and Puerto Rico, in addition to seven states previously announced, including Georgia, which Apple previously said would be one of the first states to launch the feature with Arizona. Arizona won. So I live in Arizona, so I should be excited about this. The setup process for Arizona residents can be initiated through the wallet app. Users will ask to take a selfie and a scan of their driver's license. TSA checks the user's digital ID by tapping it on one of its machines. Users don't have to hand over their device. TSA will also take a picture of the traveler. The mobile ID won't be able to visually inspect in the iPhone screen, like at a bar or a federal building. The mobile ID inside the wallet app won't show a user's photo or information. For example, users will continue to have to carry their physical license for now. Oh. Come so, on, people. Are you as excited as you were before the show? I don't want to leave with anything. I just want to leave with my phone. That's all I need. This is bullshit. It's come on, people. So the whole idea is that you won't be able to have to worry about carrying your license only. Ding, ding, ding. You do. So all this is good for us for people that don't want to take their wallet out of their pocket at the airport, which <clears throat> compared to a bar, you're more likely to have your pocket picked at a bar than you are at the airport. So I don't necessarily know what, what excitement this is. But then also what it says is the TSA is going to take your picture. So there's going to be an additional step. You're not going to breeze through security any faster. So yes and no, but it seems to me net zero. What do you think? Can I just say, I think this is a stepping stone. This is a stepping stone. Fair. I'm going to say that while yes, it's a testing phase. Yes, it's new, new technology. How do we protect? How do we secure? How do we identify? Well, this is a step. I'm in favor of where this is going. Now, does it get me to where I want to go? Probably not. You know, where I literally can leave my wallet at home and only take my phone somewhere. I'm all for that, by the way. But I think this is a step in the right direction. Does it get me to where I want to go? Not today, but maybe tomorrow. 
comment? We are very far from Back to the Future 2, where all you got to do is thumbprint. But, you know, or I don't think we're that scan. far. Actually, sorry, to be fair, to be fair, this is, this is going in the right direction. So 100%, we're on our way there. But to be announced with such fanfare, when it really isn't improving anything, net. Yeah, got to start somewhere. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You got to start somewhere. Hey, this is the whole thing. Like, when was the last time you got on a flight and actually had a paper ticket? Maybe that was, you know, when they first basically had it where, you know, you were emailed your ticket and you use that with the QR code to get on mm-hmm. the plane. Mm-hmm. That was new. Now, yeah, so it's now, like, so now it's you weird. hand them your ID, you put your phone in the scanner, mm-hmm. and that effectively gets you through security. Now you put your phone in the scanner and they take your picture and that gets you through security. So perhaps when you put it in that context, it is progress, although it's not, it's not the progress that would yield the fanfare uh, because I think that the headline steals a lot of thunder from the actuality. You don't actually get to put your driver's license in your Apple wallet. It's only for the airport. So mm-hmm. perhaps if we get to the point where you actually can put your wallet, digital ID in a wallet, that's pretty cool. I guarantee you we'll get there. I guarantee you. So now the question is, what's our timeline? Oh, I don't know. As Leon would say, and we haven't cured cancer yet. Yeah, and as Leon would say, probably 18 yeah, months, I'm guessing. Say. Maybe 24 I months. Mean, Look, there's they a lot be that there. can they happen. The seal. I mean, Arizona accepted it. Georgia's going to accept it. Yeah. There's going to be all these other states to accept it. It's it's literally going to come down to a federal database that will store these IDs, whether it's state, maybe it's state database, like you do for a driver's license, that the DMV comes database. up with an app and that app has all your digital footprint on it. And, you know, it's impossible to manipulate, hack, change. I think that's the difficult thing here. But, hey, man, I don't know. They spent a lot of money on this kind of stuff. And this is the way they, this is how we get to the future. So um, I guess to this point, is this really that important, though, too? No. No, but you made me think of something. So we are getting fairly close to a federal identification database, which is something that other countries have. Um, yes, not a good example, but I was having a conversation with my friend from Argentina who says there is a federal Argentina ID that you can carry around with you. And, and he said, it would be so nice if we had that equivalent in the States. And I said, well, we have it with the social security guard. He goes, yeah, but you don't go flashing your social security guard, right? Because you're worried about identity theft. And I said, well, you got global entry. He says, that's about as close as you're going to get right now. There is mm-hmm. no federal identification such that you can go from state to state with no papers. It's still a state regulated authority. And the challenge, as Leon knows, is when you go from state to state, states don't honor it. So Mm -hmm. he had a lot of stuff locked up in Ohio and Florida. When he came to California, California basically said, yeah, yeah, great. You need a California version. And I believe that was the source of one of his loathes. He's right. So He's right. You're going to balance the federalist versus the state's rights argument. I'm kind of leaning towards... No, either that or just carry your passport around, but your passport is global. So why walk around with a global document? Do you really need that? How much overkill do you need? But you can't hand over your passport card if you get pulled over. I think we'll pretty much go state first and then go federal after if there's something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's the states basically solving, solving the problem. If I guess what is the problem to be solved is the real question mm-hmm. here. So solving the problem now, flying planes from one, you leave one state, you enter a new state, you know, <laughs> this is convenience. This is trying to solve for not anything else. And more important, it, you know, if anything, they've made travel harder in California, at least don't know about most other states, but to fly now, you must have a true ID. Uh, could be wrong. Bob's correct me. I'm not sure when that went into effect. It could be in September of this year. The, the true idea went into effect in Arizona for sure. But I don't know if it goes in California yet. It may have. I haven't caught. Well, well, I have gotten on a plane. I've always had the true ID anyways, but you know, to this point, like you need a better ID. So yeah, I maybe just roll with the global entry and the APEC cards and the passport. So I just, yeah, so you don't have a driver's it, license. It, I'm not driving. 
Well, you and I got that one first, sir. We remember that one very, very well. We learned that one very good. But that was a funny story. We should save that for the bonus section. Send that for the bonus section. That's a that's a good one. With the well, let's let's close this one out with Apple has been working on digital licenses for over two years. It's working closely with states to issue the IDs and with the TSA to accept them. Apple is not paying states for the work they do to support the licenses. So the the optimist in me says this is a nice perk for their customers. It drives the technology forward. It's engaging government. It's trying to make things more efficient. The cynic in me says Apple's going to have all of our licenses in their database and they'll know everything about us. But Apple's a good company. Come on. For now. They I'll save that one Facebook. for Leon because I like Timmy. Timmy's good. Didn't, I don't know how much I cared for Stevie other than, you know, he is a genius. He is a once in a lifetime personality for show. I like Timmy a little bit more than Stevie, but who follows Timmy? You never know. Company's mm-hmm. got a trillion, $2 trillion market cap on their way to three. That was three. That company's yeah. a monster. Do I really trust them despite their marketing pitch for privacy? <sighs> Topic for another yeah. show. Time will tell. That wraps up business news. Let's get to the crank file. I could look for something in the crank file. Crank file. Whatever. This crank file comes to us from LiveScience.com. Now, I found this article because I like to play the Assassin's Creed franchise of games. Now, I've not played all of them, so I'm not super nut. But I loved one, all three variations of two, skipped three. I should go back and do three because I'm a, I'm a U.S. history nut. Loved four. Black Flag, the pirate version, absolutely my favorite. Pirates of the Caribbean, hands down. Skipped a couple other versions. Did the British Victorian era version. Did the French Revolution version again because I'm a history nut. Game wasn't that good. And then I started to get into a discussion with Leon about... Should I kick the 60 bucks down for the Viking version, which tickles my brain, or should I pay five bucks for the Egyptian version? Because five bucks. Now, for those of you fans of the Bobs out there that follow the Assassin's Creed story, the idea is that there are two warring societies that shape history over the centuries and they're vying for power. And the Assassins are the dark um violent group by physical violence and then there's the templars who are the dark kind of manipulative force so back and forth so we could do a whole discussion on the assassin's creed franchise point is i went for the five dollar option and i learned all about egypt which again these games are living history lessons which as a history nerd light my brain up point is when you load in the screen you jump onto this little flash screen, which is just the character. And while they're loading the entire 3D world, they throw little facts at you. One of them is, was King Tut's dagger from outer space? So I had to tug on that thread. So I found this article. King Tut's dagger from outer space may have been a gift from abroad. Debate ensues over where the Pharaoh's dagger was forged on Earth. A gold-hilted dagger found in the tomb of King Tut surprised archaeologists when they discovered that it was made of a material forged in outer space. Now, two new studies are painting conflicting pictures of the origins of the mysterious weapon, which may have been wielded by arguably the most famous ancient Egyptian, Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh, Pharaoh. One of those studies on the dagger made of iron from meteors suggests it was manufactured in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey while the other study indicates its earthly origins are still a mystery. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. I can see you're interested. At the time, King Tutankhamun reigned from 1333 BC to 1323 BC. Ten years. Didn't last long. Mm-hmm. Iron smelting had not been invented yet, meaning the metal was a rare and precious commodity that often came from meteors. In one of the new studies published February 11th in the journal Meteoritics and Planetary Science, researchers describe how an adhesive used on the dagger's gold hilt was likely made of lime plaster, 
the material that was used in Anatolia at the time Tutankhamun reigned. This lime plaster, however, was not widely used in Egypt at the time. Additionally, historical records found at the site of Amarna in Egypt show that Tushrata, the king of Mitanni in Anatolia, gifted at least one iron dagger to Amenhotep III, who reigned from 1390 to 1352 BC, grandfather of King Tut. Team also found that the iron blade was made from low temperature heat forging at less than 950 degrees centigrade, 1740 degrees Fahrenheit. Since a mineral called troilite and formations of iron nickel crystals known as Vidmanstaten could be seen in the dagger, the researchers wrote in the journal article. What do you think so far before we go on? No, it it makes sense for the time period in the technology. Um, what was that book? Guns, Germs, and Steel. Mm-hmm. A great book if you've ever read that one of understanding the evolution of well, evolution of man, really. And this is very interesting of like, you know, meteors are basically made of nickel and iron. So it's plausible, like Mythbusters. Is this plausible? Yeah, it's plausible. You know, who knows? What do you think? So the different viewpoint <clears throat> with, with what you just said, taking into account, researchers found that it is currently impossible to arrive at a reliable conclusion as to the origin of Tutankhamun's iron objects or the craftsmen and materials involved. Those study authors noted that the rock crystal, quote unquote, of the blade's pommel is similar to artifacts widely used in Aegean area or Aegean, while the pommel's typically Egyptian shape suggests either manufacture in Egypt or foreign production for an Egyptian market. As a result, no clear overall picture on the origin of the dagger's handle and blade can be made. Inconclusive. So something that I saved for a bottom of the bottle segment, which I'm going to spoil now, is at one point in ancient Greece, there was a six-year war going on, and there was a solar eclipse in the middle of a battle. And both sides looked up at the solar eclipse and went, this is the gods, it's a sign, we should stop. And they all stopped fighting, and the war was over. So take into account it's 2022 beyond an arbitrary date set by a religion in the 6 billion, 13 billion year existence that we know of, of the planet. So let's think about this. It's very likely that a meteorite hit at certain times within history. It's very likely that humans would have picked up that meteorite and went, what is this? It's very likely that they would have kept it as something special. It's also very likely that they would have given it to their deity. So I love the idea of King Tut rocking a meteorite dagger because if he is the son of God, shouldn't the son of God had something sent by God? Kind of cool. He's a cool guy with cool things. So the, to bring it back to a more academic portion of it, the blade that they found, the hilt and the blade are two separate parts. Could have been manufactured in two separate places. Marion Feldman, uh, archaeologist at Johns Hopkins University, said that if the team's findings that the dagger was manufactured in Anatolia are correct, it would be important confirmation that some of the luxurious objects found in Tutankhamun's tomb were diplomatic gifts from abroad. More research is needed, of course, to confirm those findings. But makes you think. It's a cool article. That wraps like the rank file. Let's get to because Florida. Because anything goes to Florida. Baby, let the good times roll. Because anything goes to Florida. Come on down and do your worst. Today's because Florida comes to us from the sunsentinel.com. Normally, we take the Because Florida segment to find some crazy thing some dumb Floridian did. Today, we're going to do something a little different. <clears throat> Diapers will be tax-free in Florida starting on July 1. Yay! There will be a little wiggle room in parents' budgets this summer. Diapers are going to be tax-free in Florida for one year. State Representative Anna Escamani, Democrat from Orlando, originally sponsored the bill for diapers to be tax-free permanently, but the revised version that was passed by the legislature is for one year. 
It also includes baby clothes. Starts July 1. Ultimate goal is to make it permanent, said a spokeswoman from her office Wednesday. Governor Ron DeSantis promoted the legislation while speaking in Hialeah on Wednesday. He called it a, quote, tax holiday, unquote. He quipped that because of his youngest daughter, who was about to turn two, we go through a law. When that goes into effect, they're going to be very happy to be able to save, he said. There are certain things during inflation people can cut back on, but it's kind of hard to cut back on diapers when you got a little one, he said. So normally we talk a lot of shit on Florida, but I got to say, well done. For it. I mean, we don't tax things of production like milk, which a two-year-old, you'd be going through milk. We don't tax that. We shouldn't tax diapers. Like, what, It's such a need and necessity and honestly a hygiene thing too. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not one of these cloth diapers people. Um, I don't have, do you know anybody that did the cloth diapers? Yes. And they didn't last. And they don't last. They like, eventually <laughs> gave up because what happens is you don't really wash them. You get a couple of washes out of them, but the stains don't go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the smell does, but the look doesn't. And eventually just throw them out. By and you're just like, you just look at it. You're, you're like, either buying cloth poo. diapers or you're buying disposables, but either way you're buying. Yeah, but even so this is needed um, for someone that is, Diapers are expensive. I mean, like, I think actually, like, you go through them, but like things like formula should be tax-free. They're just basic necessities. Like, you can't control formula. If your, you know, wife doesn't produce enough milk for your baby or stops producing milk or whatever the case may be. Like, why are you... Why are you paying taxes on something like that? This is that's just awful. And then also on top of it, diapers, clothing, things, things that are anything for that a child would use between a particular age. Now, maybe fine, tax the stroller, tax, tax big ticket items like a crib if you have to. Um, but like the things, the things like the the daily things that you just grind through and it's already super expensive. Hats off to you, Florida. It's a good call. Yeah, I got to say, um, for those of you, Bobs, that lean to the right, you should be very, very happy that taxes are low. But I also want to make a, a key point here. If you go to a supermarket, I want you to see if in your supermarket, the formula is on the shelf. Because in most mm. of the places that I've gone to in an informal survey in the last few years, they're not. Like the... The local Kroger by me that I like to go to and the Albertsons by me that I like to go to, they have all the formula locked up behind a cage. Now, that is the same cage where they lock up the cigarettes and the really expensive booze. And you may be thinking to yourself, formula is not a dangerous or high margin expensive item. No, but it is an item prone to shoplift. Now, who wants to shoplift formula? And for those of you that have in your mind an evil criminal with the black bandana around their eyes and the, and the black and white striped shirt, it's not. It's moms. It's moms who can't afford it. And they would rather go to jail than watch their child starve. So when you start thinking about these things and you wonder why a supermarket locks up formula in a cage, I think that's an important thing about our society and the way we consider these things. So taxes are a nice step. I'm wondering if there's a way to do more because as I have said on the pod many times, I think you've been around Mr. Jones for that. And certainly Leon's been around. There are certain countries that have go home and have sex nights because their population is low. Russia has them. Singapore has them. Japan needs to get out and start doing its thing. I'm reminded of a line from Fight Club. I wanted to kill every panda that wouldn't fuck to save its species. It's important that we have children for the future economy of our country. Having babies is good. If you are in a red state, you don't seem to have this problem. If you are in a blue state, you do. What I loved was after was, I think it was the 2016 election. A uh, friend of the show, Bo Firethorn, 
he was one of those people that was posting on social media, move to central Pennsylvania and have babies. Because he understands how that works. You need to populate in order to propagate an economy. Mm -hmm. So having babies is a good thing. Having children is a good thing. Tax credits for children are a good thing. Access to formula is a good thing. So in conclusion, good on you, Florida. We're going to give you this one. Next episode, we'll be back to picking on all the things you do wrong. And that's because Florida. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into parenting. We can make kids right now. That's why we're here. It's not the years. It's the mileage. Today's parenting segment comes to us from wallethub.com. Best and worst states to raise a family. The article starts out, raising a healthy, stable family sometimes requires moving to a new state. The reasons people choose to move are often similar. Career transitions, better schools, financial challenges, or a general desire to change settings. Wants and needs don't always align in a particular state, though. For instance, a state might offer a low-income tax rate but have a subpar education system. However, families do not need to make these kind of trade-offs. They can avoid such problems by knowing which states offer the best combination of qualities that matter most to parents and their kids. That includes more recent concerns like how well the state is handling COVID-19. To help with the evaluation process, WalletHub compared the 50 states across 51 key indicators of family friendliness. Our data set ranges from the median annual family income to housing affordability to the unemployment rate. Do you want to go through these together or do you want me to surprise you? Let's just, I mean, what do you think? I, I, I'm thinking surprise me. All right. And you got to close your eyes. Because it'll take too long. Okay. All right. Close Closed. your eyes. Ready? Can't see anything. All right. Number 10, Jersey. Jersey. Total score 57. Family fun ranks at a 21. Health and safety ranks at a 14. Education and childcare is number one. Affordability is number four. Wow. Interesting. Education and childcare. Jersey. Jersey's got it locked down. Okay. Number nine, North Dakota. No. Family fun, 31. A little bit more than Jersey. Health and safety, 17. A little more than Jersey. Education and childcare, three. Fucking North Dakota. Well done. Hmm. Affordability is 15. Oh, that's why. Yeah. So let's uh, let's pause and go back to this. So affordability is how unaffordable it is because New Jersey is number four and number seven is number one. And I know that that state is not affordable. So let's get on to number eight, Washington. Uh, I agree. Family fund, eight. Health and safety, 18. Education and child care, 26. Washington's wow. halfway. Affordability is three. Number seven is Connecticut. Family fund is 29. Health and safety is seven. Education and child care is seven. But affordability is one. Now, as far as I can tell, Connecticut is expensive. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of New York money that floods into Connecticut. It is not an it is not a cheap state. Because if we go down to 50, which is actually Florida, Florida is actually pretty cheap to live in. So I'm going to say that affordability is is not a good metric. Anyway, number six, Negative. New Hampshire. So bear in mind, this is important. We're going to get to this once we get all the way through the list, but this is important. Number six is New Hampshire. Family Fund 34, Health and Safety 2, Education and Child Care 9, Affordability 24. Nebraska, number five, Family Fund 17, Health and Safety 10, Education and Child Care 12, Affordability 14. Number four, Minnesota, Family Fund 13, Health and Safety 9, Education and Child Care 22, 
affordability nine. Number three, Vermont, Family Fund 44, Health and Safety one, Education and Child Care four, affordability 30. Number two, New York, Family Fund two, Health and Safety eight, Education and Child Care five, affordability six. And the number one, best state for families. Massey, you choose it. Family Fund nine, Health and Safety three, Education and Child Care two, and affordability two. <laughs> I would have never picked Massachusetts. Yeah, this, this whole list is bullshit. <laughs> I'm going to be Leon on this. This is bullshit. I'm sorry. Fucking New York, number two. Are you kidding me? Affordability at a six. Child's education of five. Health and safety at eight. And family fun too. What the fuck are you doing in Florida for fun? Or I'm sorry, in New York for fun. Like, I, I just, I can't. I can't get there. Um, well, the part that's interesting to me is one, two, three. Yes. Four, five. Five states in the top 11 are the conglomerate known as New England. The well, left there's that Maine. too. Yeah. And you know what's funny? In the top the 10, they got actually, look at the top five. Who are blue and who are red? Oh, good question. Nebraska's red. Yeah. Minnesota's blue. It's blue. Now, New it's, York's blue. It, wow. New York's, New Vermont's York's probably blue. red. No, it's blue. Vermont's blue. Massachusetts is blue. Blue. So it's literally four out of the five. I'm certainly, I mean, you could say, I'm going to say Nebraska is definitely red, but Minnesota swings both ways. Um, but you have four out of the five are blue. I, I'm just curious. It's let's look at the, the bottom five. One. Look at the yeah, bottom so five. The bottom five. This, this so too. Number 45, West Virginia. Makes sense. Number 46, Oklahoma. Number 47, South Carolina. Number 48, Louisiana. Louisiana. Number 49, New Mexico. And the worst state to raise a family, Mississippi. And what's really interesting to the Bobs out there is one thing that's a theme here is they are extremely affordable places to live. Mm -hmm. But when you get down to, look, something comes with cost of living. And the fact is that you have government dollars that are being collected that can promote it healthcare, education, and so forth, those states are going to fall very, very much behind the curve. My home state of Arizona is 40. The three most populous states in the union, Florida's 39, Texas is 30, and California is 24. What's so, one? What's the first column? Family fun. Thank you. At least there's something correct about the survey. <laughs> California is absolutely number one for family fun for show. I think there's no doubt on that one. But I would have thought Florida it. would be six. So here's the interesting part. It's based on the metrics of this exam. New York is more exciting. So California for sure, number one. New York, number two. Number three for family fun. Hawaii. Illinois. Oh, Illinois. Family fun. <laughs> Hawaii's 15. That makes no sense. Yeah. I mean, other than Chicago. Are you kidding me? Uh, family fun. Number five is Texas. Number six is Florida. Nevada is number four. So I guess that's Vegas. Number seven is Colorado skiing. Yeah. But how is Hawaii not like eight in is the top Washington. 10? Interesting. So perhaps I guess, some flawed metrics here. Anyway, for the Bobs at home, you can you can check out this. We post all the notes in the, uh, the URL links in the show notes. Ooh, interesting other facts here. Highest median family salary, Minnesota. Lowest median family salary, New Mexico. Most affordable housing, Iowa. Least affordable housing, California. Uh, that makes sense. I agree. Lowest childcare costs. South Dakota, highest childcare costs, Nebraska. Odd. But Most California families with was, young kids. California Utah, was 27, surprise, by the way. Surprise, surprise. Fewest family with young kids, West Virginia. Lowest infant mortality rate, Vermont. 
highest infant mortality rate. Mississippi. Yeah. I know what skewed the results. You can't have a family if they're dead. Yeah. It's true. Uh, fewest violent crimes per capita, Maine. Most violent crimes per capita. <sighs> wait, wait, guess. Five way tie for 46. <laughs> yeah, but Alaska's in there. That's fucking awesome. Well, not, it's not awesome. Most violent crimes per capita has a five-way tie. Arkansas, yeah, Louisiana, it's funny. New Mexico, Tennessee, and Alaska. Five of the, four of the five are all red states. Yeah, not funny. But for our purposes, funny. Fewest violent crimes per capita. Most violent crimes per capita. Red states. Lowest percentage of families in poverty. New Hampshire, Minnesota, Maryland, North Dakota, and Hawaii. Highest percent of families in poverty, West Virginia, Kentucky, Louisiana, New Mexico, and Mississippi. There's a theme here. Uh, New Mexico is kind of blue, isn't it? It's, yeah, it is blue. But mostly Indian land. It's mostly Indian land, yeah. Uh, lowest separation and divorce rate, Utah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Highest separation and divorce rate, Nevada. I can't understand why. The biggest little church chapel in all of Nevada. Yeah, I mean, who who hasn't wanted to get married in Vegas? Boom, boom, I mean, boom. Anyway, that's from wallethub.com. The URL will be in our show notes. That was fun. That ends our parenting segment. Let's uh let's get to let's get to the bottom of the bottle as we close things out here. This bitch is empty. Yeet! Today's factoid is. Switzerland is the longest country name with no repeated letters. So I want you to think about your longest country names you can think of. Burkina Faso, Indonesia. What are your long Greenland? What are your long United States of America? What are your long country names? I bet you'll find that Switzerland is the only one that doesn't repeat any letters. Fun fact. Good times. Anyway, that's our show. You can email us at bottleofbrown at gmail.com. Call us at 602-529-4562. Leave a message for Danny, Leon, or Mr. Jones. We'll play it on the air. Give us ideas for content or refute anything we say on the show. If you like the show, please like, follow, subscribe, and share with a friend. Especially share with a friend. We want more Bobs out there. We are on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share a drink with us next episode. Same brown time. Same brown channel, bottleofbrown.com. This place is dead anyway, man. <laughs>